As I said, today we're going to conclude our series in the book of Ruth. So uh, we will do that today. No service on Christmas Day. If you haven't heard that yet and you show up on Christmas Day, we will not be here. But we'll be here on Christmas Eve. Got it? Everyone good? Moving on. January 1st, Story Sunday. And then January 8th, we're going to start a new series called The Patterns of Jesus. We're going to look at the rhythms of Jesus' life and see those as examples for our own. That's also our fourth birthday. So that's exciting. We'll have a birthday brunch. Yeah. All right. Four-year-olds, we, we like, might be starting potty training. Uh, so we're doing a good job. But we're going to, um, maybe that wasn't a good analogy for you. I apologize. But for me, it works. And we're going to, like, there's an opportunity for you to sign up on our website to bring something. So please make sure you do that. Um, and we'll gather here after the service to eat together and hang out and just hear all about what God is doing and what we hope he will do for the future. But let's turn our attention to Ruth chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to sum up good chunks of this, but we're really going to focus in on verses 13 through 17. And what we're going to see today is that God turns our emptiness to fullness and our bitterness to joy through the gift of his son. Emptiness to fullness, bitterness to joy. And my question to you is, which defines you? Emptiness and bitterness or fullness and joy? Which one defines you? I still remember to this day I was an RA my junior year of college at a conservative Christian university. Uh, and since, you know, for anonymity's sake, let's just call it Barron University. And at Barron University, uh, I was in charge of one particular wing with a co-RA, and we were told by the university to decorate our wing, and it was in the university's brand-new residence hall at the time. So we did. And the day before the semester, as things typically go, I don't know why it ends up happening this way, but the university's board decided they were going to walk through the residence hall. And they decided that they didn't like our theme, that we had spent hours upon hours decorating this wing, putting people's door decorations up, all kinds of good stuff. If you've never been an RA, this makes no sense to you, but it takes some time. Maybe you had an RA. They do take a lot of effort and a lot of time. And they told us that we need to take all of our decorations down. Except for one picture. I don't, that still to this day, I don't like why the one picture. It was like William Penn. I don't know why they let us keep that one up. I don't know. But the only explanation we were given is that it's not the university, whatever that means. We were told it's, it's not the university. Well, why this, this, and this? It's not the university. I don't know what that means, but it was not the university. So we're incredibly frustrated and I remember talking to Tom, my RD, my resident director. And Tom was wonderful because Tom, what he would do, he would not only empathize with your situation, but he would challenge you where you were wrong. Like, you need friends like that, right? You need people in your life who would just not only empathize with you, but also say, hey, Evan, you're off about this. And what Tom did is he warned me of the dangers of bitterness, and he challenged me, and I remember the Tuesday, we're walking past the university tennis courts, and he simply says to me, Evan, don't get bitter. And I really appreciate that advice and still remember it to this day, but young people, maybe you've had a parent or a teacher challenge you, and you know they're right, 
but you just don't want to listen to them anyway? That was like me with Tom. I knew he was right, but I didn't want to listen to him. So as much as he was right, I still got bitter. Toward the board, toward the university, toward the university's president, I got bitter. See, when things don't go your way, it's easy to feel empty, right? And that emptiness can lead you in those moments to bitterness. And that's exactly what happens to Naomi at the beginning of the book of Ruth. If you've been here since the start, you'll remember Naomi comes and she's bitter. But by the end of the book, it's this amazing thing we see that her fortunes have been completely reversed by God. Where she started empty, in emptiness and bitterness, by the end it's now been turned into fullness and joy. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 4 and look at verse 1. Now Boaz, Boaz is the redeemer of the story, he had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer. So Boaz, if you, in Ruth chapter 3, says, Hey, I can be your Redeemer, Ruth, but actually there's somebody in line ahead of me. So this guy comes, and so Boaz said to him, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, last week we talked about this, that the Proverbs 31 woman's husband is known in the gates. And so Boaz has found the Proverbs 31 woman in Ruth, and her soon-to-be husband is Boaz. He's known in the gates of his town, his city. But like I said, he's told her that there's a redeemer ahead of him. So Boaz, what he does is he waits for him to come. And when this man comes, notice the man's not named, by the way. He's just the redeemer. Now, it's probably because in Ruth, this is a for free, that names relate to somebody's character, and this man is not named. So it means he has no character. Cool? Impress your friends with that leader. So he pulls him aside, and he gathers ten, Boaz gathers ten men of the elders of the city to determine who's going to be the redeemer. And Boaz tells this unnamed man that Naomi's selling her land. And it's this man's right to redeem it since he's first in line. But if he doesn't want it, Boaz says, I'll take it. And the man says, heck yeah, I'll take the land. So then Boaz in verse 5 says this, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So here's what's happening here. The man wants the land, but not Ruth. And if he takes Naomi's land, he'll have to give up his own inheritance as somebody else's son. Which would be fine if he doesn't have a son. But if he marries Ruth along with it, and they somehow have a son, which I don't have time to explain to you how that happens, but you can talk to your parents later, and they have a son, their son gets the inheritance. And this man's left with nothing. So he says, it's not worth the risk. 
It's not worth the risk for me to take Ruth, too, because if we have a kid together and it ends up being a boy, the boy gets everything and I'm left with nothing. I'm not willing to take the risk. But Boaz is willing to take the risk to do what's right, proving again that he's a man of worthy character based on chapter 2. We, we hear that about him. And the author is constantly doing it throughout the book of Ruth. He's making, he or she is making these connections to other passages in the Bible. In chapter 3, Ruth is the faithful, self-forgetful daughter of Moab, unlike the unfaithful, self-absorbed mother of Moab. And as I said, he's also trying to, the author's also trying to show us that Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. But then what's interesting is that the author points this out, that the elders of Bethlehem compare Boaz and Ruth to Judah and Tamar. Look at verse 12. When, so Boaz ends up saying, all right, I'll take Ruth, I'll take the land, and I will marry her. And you guys heard me say this. And they say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So here's another connection. Who's Perez? Who's Tamar and Judah? In Genesis chapter 38, Tamar is married to Ur, E-R. Judah's firstborn son. And like the story of Lot's daughters, this story doesn't make our children's Bibles. And you'll hear why in a second. Here's basically what happens. Er is wicked, so God kills him. True story. That's what it says. Then Judah's second son, Onan, redeems Tamar. But Onan, and because we have young ears here, let's put it delicately, when he's performing the act to impregnate Tamar pulls out, which God sees as a wicked thing to do because he's supposed to redeem Tamar. Instead, he decides not to. So God kills Onan. So Judah's like, well, every son that I give to Tamar ends up dying, so I'm not going to give her any more of my sons. And to make a long story short, what ends up happening is Tamar tricks Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her, and she gets pregnant and has Perez. True story. Genesis 38, did not make your children's Bibles, probably for good reason. The author wants you to see this. Judah rejected his responsibility. Boaz did not. But more importantly, whether his people decided to act unfaithfully or faithfully, God in his providence preserved Judah's family line. No matter if Judah acts unfaithfully or Boaz acts faithfully, God still preserves the family line. So your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness, listen to me, has no effect on God's providence. And that's good news for those of us who live unfaithfully on the regular, like myself. God will do what he's determined to do in spite of what you or I choose to do because it rests on his faithfulness not yours, not mine. So jumping back into Ruth, verse 13, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And jump ahead to the end of verse 17. They named him Obed. His, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God in his providence wanted 
because it's God's faithfulness, not Judah's family line's faithfulness. God in his providence wants to continue Judah's line all the way to David. And what we learn about David, he's this great king. And in Judges, if you remember, if you were here for the series in Judges, Israel never has rest from their enemies. But when David comes, 2 Samuel 7, 1 says that when David comes, when David sets up his house, all of a sudden Israel has rest from her enemies. So God in his providence, like he did with Naomi, would turn Israel's emptiness and bitterness into fullness and joy through the gift of Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson, David. So let's look a little deeper into emptiness and bitterness. Because Naomi started the book empty after losing her husbands and sons, and her emptiness leads her to bitterness. Look at chapter 1 again. It will be on the screen. So Ruth and Naomi went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back, what? Empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's how she starts the book. Empty and bitter. Mara means bitter. But the book ends with her in fullness and joy. Listen to verse 14 and 15 of chapter 4. The women said to Naomi, remember, the women said one thing. Here they are again. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So there's some irony here that the author is trying to bring out. Naomi asked the women of Bethlehem to call her bitter, but instead at the end, they are calling her blessed. Naomi's emptiness made her bitter and her bitterness blinded her from seeing the blessing she had right in front of her, which is what? A daughter-in-law who loves you more than seven sons. Naomi, you lost two sons. This woman, this daughter, Ruth, is worth more to you than seven sons. You want us to call you bitter. We're calling you blessed. See, bitterness will always blind you to blessing. Have you ever watched Antique Roadshow or Pawn Stars? I got like into like a Pawn Star, Stars stage of my life. I went through that phase. Anybody else been through the Pawn Stars phase? All right, fantastic. Thank you. It's more hands than I normally get. And I was always amazed when someone would bring in something that just had like sitting around their house and they would find out it's worth like hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars. See, if you focus on your emptiness, what you don't have, you'll get bitter. And when you get bitter, your blindness will blind you from seeing the blessings God has already given you. See, emptiness leads to bitterness and bitterness leads you to a state of constant discontentment. So you look around and you go, I don't have that thing. 
God, I don't have that. And you think that you'll never be happy unless you have that thing. And because you don't have that thing, you end up getting bitter and you'll be constantly discontent. But God wants you to see what he's already given you as a blessing. So stop saying you're bitter to me when I'm blessing you, when I have blessed you, and be content with that. Young people, have you ever asked your parents for something and they respond, why do you need that? You already have one of those, right? You're like, hey, uh, I, would like to, I would like a new iPhone, and your parents are like, well, you already have one. Why do you need another one? And you're like, yeah, but it's not as good as the one that I could have, right? And we pick on kids for doing this, but adults, we do this all the time. God gives us a place to live, but we're not happy until we have that place to live. God gives us a nice job, but we're not happy until we have that job. God gives us time with our children, but we're not happy until they move to that stage of life. God gives us a spouse who, and the spouse who they are now, and we're not happy until that spouse becomes that spouse five years from now after they've gone through five more years of sanctification and growth. We go, well, God, I don't, I don't want the spouse you give me now. I'm looking for that spouse in five years. And God says, I blessed you with this one. This is who you have. You can't get so focused on what you don't have. Because when you get focused on what you don't have, that will f- make you fail to see what you do have. Your house is a blessing. Your job is a blessing. The stage your kids are in is a blessing. Your spouse, as he or she is right now, is a blessing. Whether it's for your own sanctification or for you to learn contentment and not to grumble so much about them. But if you're focused on moving to the next best thing, you'll end up living in this constant state of discontentment. Have you ever thought about that? Like, think about that. If you're always looking for the next best thing, when you get that next thing, it's going to be the next best thing, and then it's going to be the next best thing. You're constantly going to live in this state of when, then. When I have that then my life will be better. When my kids grow up, then I'll relate to them on their level. When I do such and such in my career, then I'll be happy. When my house looks like Joanna Gaines's home, then I'll be able to rest. I always pick on Joanna Gaines. She's probably a great woman. Or when inflation goes down and gas prices go down, then I'll be generous. When, then. That's going to leave you in a constant state of discontentment. You're, going to con- you're never going to be happy. Because it's always going to be when, then. When I become a morning person, then I'll read my Bible. When I know how to read the Bible the way my home eating leader does, then... I'll read it myself. When I have a better prayer life, then I'll pray. You see, like, it doesn't make sense. God isn't going to give us more if we can't handle what he's already blessed us with. You don't give your teenager keys to the cars, to your car, if they haven't proven they can handle it. They have to be responsible with it. So instead of focusing on your emptiness and what you don't have and getting bitter with God about it, why not try being content with what he's already blessed you with? 
if you have, if you woke up this morning, which you all did, and you have air in your lungs, which you all do, at least in this moment as I'm speaking, you've been blessed by God, and God says, just be content with that. I woke you up today. There's a bunch of people. My son reminded me yesterday that one person dies and two people are born. So that means one person is definitely dying. You didn't die today, at least up to this point. Congratulations. God's saying, that's a blessing. The reason we aren't content, though, is because our hearts are entitled. You and I think we deserve that thing. I'm a good person, he might say, so God should give me what I want. And if he doesn't, he needs to wake up and realize how great I am. We think we deserve more just be, and just because we think we deserve it. You don't, you don't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't earn anything to wake up today. Yet somehow we think we deserve that thing. God says, I already blessed you. I already gave you something you didn't deserve. Just be responsible with today. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned, listen to this, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not like a verse we just put on our shirts, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means like I can jump off this roof and I'll be fine. No, Paul's saying that all the things you can do is learn to be content, whether things are going well or they're not. That's what God gives you. He gives you strength, and he gives you the ability to rely on him. So instead of, but instead of learning to be content in whatever state we're in, like Paul, as a chance to learn to rely on God's strength, we act like we're entitled for more. And then we're empty and bitter, and we push God out by our entitlement. And then what we also do is we push people away at the same time. Like, who wants to be around a bitter, entitled person? Eventually that comes out. Because the more bitter you become, the more callous you become towards your bitterness, and you start not to even see it. People go, I don't want to be around him. I don't want to be around her. And then what ends up happening is we find ourselves becoming emptier than we would have been if we just learned to be content if we just learn to enjoy what God has already given us, bitterness will always lead you to be blind to blessing. Always. But the story doesn't end there. It ends with fullness and joy. Look at Ruth 4, 16 through 17. Then Naomi, guys, just, just picture this for a second. Picture this. Enter the story. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Enter the story. Naomi's bitter and empty. She has no son. She has no prospects. She has no family line because in her mind, her family line is gone. And now she's sitting with the baby on her lap 
playing with him and taking care of him and caring for him as if he's her own because God in his providence took her emptiness and bitterness and turned it into fullness and joy. And did you notice who is the son a gift to? To Ruth? No. They say it's a gift to Naomi. Naomi doesn't deserve this gift. She's not entitled to it. She's bitter. But despite Naomi's bitterness, God in his providence provides her a son, a grandson. And I got to be honest, if I was God, there's no way I'm doing this for Naomi. There's no way. I'm going to go find somebody who does appreciate me. I'm going to find somebody who sees, isn't blind from their bitterness and sees the blessing that I give them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a son to that person. And I'll figure out the details later. I'll figure out how to get to David somehow. Don't worry about it. But I'm going to give it to that person over there. But thankfully, that's not how God works. See, God only gives gifts to those who don't deserve it because none of us deserve gifts. See, we come into this world empty and our hearts make, our sin makes our hearts entitled and we end up becoming bitter, yet God gave the gift of his son, Jesus, to take our emptiness and our bitterness upon himself on the cross and he reversed our fortunes from being enemies of God to being part of his family as his children. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. And if I was God, I would have given it to somebody who I thought did. But God said, no, 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 none of you deserve it. Heaven doesn't deserve it. Nobody here deserves it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. See, God as providence gave Boaz and Ruth the gift of a son so we can experience the gift of his son. And in this gift, Jesus got what we actually were entitled to. Jesus experienced the emptiness that you and I deserved. When his father turned his face away from him because he bore my sin on the cross, your sin on the cross. That's what you deserve. You and I deserve God to turn away from us, to turn his face from us. But instead, Jesus takes that on. So God turns his face away from Jesus and towards you and me. And he experienced the bitterness that we deserved. Jesus experienced the rejection. Jesus experienced the mockery. Jesus experienced the suffering. And because of what Jesus has done, when we put our faith and trust in him, God turns our emptiness and bitterness that we deserve into fullness that comes from the Holy Spirit and being part of God's family and joy of a relationship with him. And the fullness and joy we receive doesn't put us in a, constant, a state of constant discontentment, but of restful contentment. See, David, the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth, was only able to give Israel temporary peace. Temporary. But the gift of God's Son gives us eternal rest. Eternal peace. Eternal rest from our enemy, our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I talk about this constantly here. Jesus doesn't say, get your crap together. Make sure you deserve it. Make sure you work pretty hard. And when you do, you can come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're weary and you're heavy laden, your life's beating you down, you can't carry it anymore, and you're about to fall to your knees and you're on your face, I'll take you then. 
It's like, I'm not building a, I'm not building a super team because of your super already. I'm going to build a team. I'm going to make you super. Emptiness, bitterness, discontentment, and entitlement will always leave you restless, constantly chasing after the next best thing, and it will leave you emptier than you were before. But through Jesus, Ephesians 1 says that we get everything Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz received and better. Ephesians 1 says you don't get just get any family. You get a better family filled with sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't just get any blessing. You get a better blessing. Ephesians 1 says you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God has already blessed you, and anything else he gives you is gravy. We get a better redemption, redemption through Jesus' blood and the forgiveness of sins, and we get a better inheritance than a piece of land. We get eternity with him, and we're given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. So in Jesus, God gives us fullness and joy, and these come to define us. Obed means servant because he serves Naomi by restoring her and nourishing her in her old age. So then what does that mean for us who've been restored by God and nourished through the Spirit because of what the servant Jesus has done for us? Because we experience fullness and joy in Jesus, you don't become entitled, you become empowered. By God, to serve those around you who aren't experiencing fullness of joy that comes with having faith in Christ. Anybody's fullness and joy that they have right now is just fool's gold, the Bible's saying. If they want true fullness, they want true joy, it's up to us as God's servants to share that with them. So who needs you to share the fullness of joy that comes with Jesus? Who needs you right now? Who needs you to share the gospel with them? Who is that person? Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your roommate. Maybe it's somebody at work. Who needs fullness and joy in your life? Your kids? Your wife? Who? Invite that person to Christmas Eve. It's simple. Let them know you see them and that you care about them. Hey, I don't know where you, if you have a place to go to church on Christmas Eve. Why don't you come with me? empty. No place to go. Yes, you do. Fullness with me. Or sit down and hear their story. Who is that who needs you just to sit and hear their story? And maybe there's people in your life who just need a gift from you this year. I see you. I see you need fullness here. Let me just contribute a little bit to that, and hopefully that will also spur up some joy and maybe some conversations we can have about Jesus who gives you true fullness and joy. So realize what God has done for you. And don't be defined by emptiness and bitterness, but instead embrace the fullness and joy that comes, and it can only come through the gift of the Son, Jesus, God's Son. Let's pray. Hey, with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you have never 
embraced the blessing and the fullness of joy that comes in Jesus. I just want to give you a moment to just silently ask God to receive it. Just say, God, I've messed up. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. But I turn to you today to give me fullness and joy. I'm empty and bitter, and I need you. And for the rest of us, Father, who have embraced Jesus, we ask that today we would embrace the fullness and joy that comes with him. To not be bitter, to not focus on our emptiness, but focus on our blessing and what you've given us already in him. Help the idea of Ephesians 1 that you've given us every spiritual blessing in Christ to be true for us, that we actually feel that in our bones, that you've given us a better family, You've given us a better inheritance. You've given us a better redemption. We thank you for Jesus. And as we come, we confess our sins and we come to the table. We ask that we would be reminded of that through what Jesus has done for us. And it's in his name we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.